Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the new skipper for the Chicago White Sox, Pedro Grifol. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast, I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by the manager of the Chicago White Sox. Brand new, just just got the new job. Ladies and gentlemen, Pedro Grifol. Pedro, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Booney. Pleasure to be here. And congratulations on the new gig. It's been a long time coming, but but it's got to be a pretty awesome feeling. Yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing um, process. Um, you know, there was three jobs available. I interviewed for all three and. Um, you know, thank God this was the one I was able to land. This is a really good, really good place. Good people, good team. Uh, I'm excited. What's the first thing you did when you got, when they said, uh, you're our new skipper? Well, my family was here, so we just sat down and a uh, quick little prayer. Thanks. And, uh, celebrated that night with my friends and started thinking about how I can bring, you know, some of the staff members that I was able to bring over with us. I was thinking about it in our day. We're similar age. You know, whenever you get traded or you moved on to a new organization, first thing always happened. seems like my new skipper would give me a call and, or, or, or if there was a new skipper hired, you know what I'm saying? I'd get a call and just either welcoming to me to the team or saying, Hey, I'm your new skipper. Uh, do you do, do you do anything like that with the current Chicago roster? I did. I actually did. I spoke to about three or four guys before the press conference and within uh, five to seven days after I had uh, uh, spoken or connected with probably 90% of the group already. There was just a couple that uh, they're out of the country that I haven't been able to, uh, to, to speak to, but we've connected uh, via text. What a journey you've had. You go from being a six round draft pick, uh, Florida state skipper, of the white Sox, and Take me through that journey a little bit. Take me through that long run from player. And, and obviously when, when we're growing up and, and we get higher up in the ranks as players, we want to be big league baseball players. Um, take me from that journey from player to staff. And was there a point in, in your career and your journey where you started thinking, you know, maybe I'm not going to be the player I wanted to be. I want to be a big league manager or was it, was it one of those things? Cause a lot of guys and a lot of guys I played with and against, you know, they're always told, Hey, you'd be a good skipper one day. Uh, was that the case or just, I, I want to hear your, your version of your journey. Well, actually we, uh, Booty, you and I played together in the USA team for about two weeks. I yeah. Don't yeah, I do. I do. That was in 87, maybe no, 88. No, no, no. I'm sorry. 88, 89, wasn't it? 89, 89. That's right. 89. Yes. 89. The umbrella defense with, yeah, uh, yeah. I forget the, who was the name of the manager is from Miami. Charlie, Charlie Green. Charlie Green. Cause I just had uh, recently on the podcast, we had Raul Abanez who played at Miami Dade, who played for Charlie Green. And, and we talked about that. We talked about the umbrella defense. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so anyways, uh, obviously, you know, growing up in, in Miami, it's a hotbed for baseball. I played at Columbus High School, then went to Florida State, wanted no part of no part of the University of Miami. Um, so and I liked Florida State since probably I was a freshman in high school. So ended up playing there. 
uh, played three years there, went to uh, six round pick, like you said, with the uh, with the twins and just moved up quickly. You know, and I was in uh, and I got drafted in 91 and 93. I was in triple A um, playing and I had my first injury with the, my shoulder and I had it again in 94. And it was in 94. It's funny you mentioned that. You said, take me through that journey. And if there was one particular moment in 1994, when I had my, I ended up having shoulder surgery. Uh, I was having a real bad year. Um, and as soon as I had the surgery, there was a scout by the name of Larry Corgan um, that was a part of the Twins organization. And he, uh, he was there visiting us. And I said to him, Larry, um, what do I need to do to be able to manage after I'm done? And the reason I asked him that morning was because I was already thinking about it. You know, Phil Roof and a couple other managers saying, hey, you know what? Um, you got a chance to be in this game a long time. Uh, just play this out as a player and, you know, uh, but there's a future for you. So I had already thought about that a little bit. And then when you when you have that surgery, uh, when players have surgery, you always have that fear of, am I going to be able to get back? So I, I had the surgery, the fear was there. So I was already thinking, you know, what, what can I do after the game? So my passion was to be on the field. So I asked uh, Larry Corgan and back in the day, if, um, if you didn't have gray hair, you couldn't manage. Now, if you have gray hair, you probably won't get an opportunity. You know, uh, I have no hair. So, but that's because of my, my daughters, uh, three girls. <laughs> Um, but anyways, I asked Larry Corgan, Larry Corgan said, Hey, you know what? Uh, you got to play at least five more years to be able to manage. Um, and I said, really? And he goes, yeah, if you want to be able to do this and do it right, you got to get, you got to get some time in as a player. You can't play three or four years and then expect to, you know, to go into player development and manage a ball club. And I was like, okay, luckily I was able to bounce back a little bit and, um, got rule five by the Mets minor league rule five, and was able to hang on for about five more years. Um, after I was done, uh, actually I wasn't done. I had back surgery in 99 and I rehabbed, uh, to, uh, you know, to go to spring training and I had an offer from, um, uh, Houston and Montreal, I think at the time, um, I think it was Montreal. I'm not sure it was Houston and somebody else. And, but they weren't inviting me to big league spring training. And that would have been my first year you know, catchers, there's seven or eight of us that go to spring training. If you're a triple A catcher and you're not going to spring, major league spring training, you're just going to spring training to catch bullpen and see you later. Um, so I was like, I don't think I want to do that. So I headed on over to the University of Miami for a game. They were playing Florida that night and I walked in there. And as soon as I walked in, uh, one of the scouts said, hey, are you going to go back to playing? I'm like, ah, I'm not sure. And he goes, well, there's a job available here. The Mariners are looking for an area scout. And I had I had two kids at the at the time. Uh, no, I had, yeah, I had two kids at the time and I'm like, you know what? A scouting job in South Florida would be kind of nice, you know, stay home with the family, my kids, my, my two daughters at the time. And I'm like, yeah, I'm telling them I'm interested. Uh, the next day I met with, uh, John McMitchin of the Seattle Mariners and the following day I got the job. So the game took me in a play in a direction where I didn't really want to go, but at the time it was really good for my family. I always wanted to be on the field, but I started as a scout. You know, and ended up doing that for six drafts. But after after the third draft, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore, man. I want to be on the field. And I had an opportunity to go to Tennessee, University of Tennessee. Um, and when I told our 
vice president of player development and scouting that he goes, well, why do you want to go there? And I said, I want to be on the field. And he goes, well, let me get back to you. And the, the following day he goes, look, I can, I can allow you to manage a short season, but you have to do the draft in Florida. So I said, that's cool. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll do the draft and, and then uh, go manage Everett, you know, in, uh, in the Northwest league. So I did that for three years and that was, uh, that was pretty fun. That was, uh, you know, summers in Seattle, as you know, are, are, are pretty cool. Um, and then after that, they made me the field coordinator. They made me the farm director. Um, didn't want to do it. Uh, after three years, I didn't want to do the farm directing thing and didn't like the office. I missed the field uh, too much. I ended up going to winter ball to manage in winter ball. And after that, uh, I told them I'm done. I'm done with the office. And they put me to manage an A ball for a year in Seattle in high desert. And after that, I went to uh, Kansas City. I took a rookie ball job in Kansas City to be with my family because I've been out for a long, long time uh, in winter ball. And on May 30th, Booney, they they fired the Dayton fired both hitting coaches and brought me and uh, George Brett up. And that was it. Ten years later, here I am. I mean, it's you're you, at this point. It's like you're you're doing it all. Like you said, you're you're director of minor league operations. You got you got uh, some experience now managing on the field. You go to the Royals in a minor league role, and and like you said in 2013, uh, you called to the big leagues, and you and George are the hitting instructors now. Is that the last thing you expected in 2013? Was at the beginning of the season. Oh, yeah. I was in rookie ball and I took the job only because it was in Arizona and we were living in Arizona. That's the only reason I took the job. And because I was planning on taking the year off because three years of winter ball as a farm director, which, by the way, I, I, that, you know, I I, I got to, you know, give my many thanks to Jack Zorensic that allowed me to do that. You know, a farm director going to winter ball, uh, it's, it's unheard of. And he gave me that opportunity because he knew how much I wanted to do it. So I was ready to take the year off. Um, and I said, I'll do a winter, I'll do a rookie ball job because I'm with my family here in Arizona. And, and not only is it, not only is it hard to go from rookie ball to the big leagues, um, but I had never been a hitting coach before ever. And, and which is I, by the way, the worst job in the world. I mean, when, they, when, they, when the hitters don't hit, you suck. Yeah. And, and when the hitters do hit, it has nothing to do with you. It's because you got great hitters. No doubt. And, and here's the, so the happiest day of my life was when I got to the big leagues as a hitting coach. And the second happiest day of my life is when Ned Yost told me, you're not going to be the hitting coach anymore. I'm going to make you the catching coach. Right. And so, um, I mean, that's just the hitting coach's job. It's, it's a really, really tough job. I had never done any hitting coaching before prior to the, you know, uh, Kansas city. Um, you know, obviously as a farm director and a field coordinator, you dig in and you hear, you know, you, you, you hear the meetings and you hear coaches all the time and you're in the cages. But as far as leading, leading a group uh, on the hitting side, I had never done it before. So, you know, George, after eight weeks tells me, Hey, Pete, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this thing anymore. You know? Uh, and I said, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, so Dayton comes down to me and says, Hey, you're our, you're our hitting guy. And then after the year, he says, so here's a two-year deal. You're going to be our, our hitting guy uh, for the next couple of years. So I'm like, now I'm all in with the hitting. <laughs> you know, but in, but in that next year, um, Booty, that next year, we were we started off the year and we hadn't hit a home run 
in probably three weeks as a team. We were the only team in baseball without a home run. And about three weeks into it, Ned says, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, I want to shake things up here. I want to put you where I think you belong. Um, you're going to start doing the catching, help me here on the bench. Uh, and I'm going to restructure some of the staff. And I'm like, I'm all in, man. And that was it. Yeah, I know George. I've seen some interviews with you. George has been a big part of your life through uh, through this whole process. But at first, you could probably hide behind. Well, let George, you know, George is the headliner here and let him do it. You saw he got out in a hurry. I, I, I've had a, you know, and, and you probably have, too. Along the way, we have so many different hitting coaches. I've had so many different hitting coaches in my life, and, and I can count on. <laughs> on one finger or two fingers, uh, the guys that really could help me. And, and it's almost like for me, it was, it was the words. It wasn't physically, you know, we all know as, as professionals and big leaguers, when you get to that level, we know how to hit. So it's not so much the physical that you see on, on hitting videos or anything like that. It was more for me, Something subtly said as as uh, my hitting coach would walk by me or or in a meeting saying, Booney, you ever think about that top hand a couple of weeks ago in Texas? Remember, we were talking about that. I'm, I'm giving you a hypothetical here, but right. and all of a sudden something would click in my mind and I'd go, you're right. And I'd go back to the drawing board because hitting it's such a thing that that nobody really has the concept outside of the game. It's like, you know, you'll, you'll hear the typical fan when when their team isn't hitting is fire the hitting coach. And I laugh every time I said, you realize it has pretty much zero to do with the hitting coach, right? No, that coach should be fired. Well, on the surface, it seems normal, but it's it, it's really not. Hitting is about trial and error. And as players, it's about repetition, repetition, finding out, okay, I'm working, I'm tweaking this in my swing. Does this work? Oh, this feels really good. Let me take it into a game up. Oh, that didn't work back to the drawing board. That's what hitting is. And we all come up with our way to get in the best position we can to hit. And, and I just found, man, being that hitting coach, if you put me in that position right now, what would I do? Well, I talked to psychology, the, the psychological side of the game. I love talking how to prepare to hit over a 162 game schedule. I think, I think that's the most important thing. I learned that later in my career, uh, Edgar Martinez and myself would sit down and we'd have lengthy talks. I watched guys like Manny Ramirez, how they prepared. He was probably the most prepared hitter. Once he stepped from that on deck circle into the box and became disciplined, had a plan stuck to his plan was unwavering. That's the way I think you hit over 162 games. You don't go from game to game at bat to at bat. It's a process. It's a plan. And uh, as tough as hitting is, I, I think that's the way you have to go about it is how can I get my pupil, the player in this situation into the best frame frame of mind to put him in a position to have the most success he had. And then after that, you sit on the bench and, and you live and die probably with all your guys because you want him to do so good, so bad. Is is that, that kind of an accurate description? No doubt about it. I mean, I, you described it perfectly. That's what I think, you know, actually a big league coach is. Um, mechanics in the major leagues. I mean, if you're teaching mechanics in the major leagues, something, something didn't go right in the minor leagues. I mean, big league players have – good mechanics for the most part. And if they don't have good mechanics, they, their, the mechanics that they use are mastered by them to have success. That's their big league players. That's why they're there. 
So the mechanics, I think, is the last thing that should be on a major league coach's mind in anything they do. It's it's all, most of it is psychological. Most of it is getting the guys to feel really good about themselves, getting the guys to feel like they're the best on the field on that particular day and and motivating guys on a daily basis. And that's really what I did as a hitting coach. You know, I didn't, I wasn't going to dig into mechanics with Eric Hosmer and Salvador Perez and Mike Mostakas. I'm not, I'm not doing that, but I am going to dig into their mindset and uh, make them feel like they're the best player on that field that particular night. So that's what I think it's about. That's what I think managing is about. That's what I think coaching is about. Um, at our, at the big league level, um, it, it's very little mechanics and, and a lot of psychology. I want to talk about your your part of that 2015 World Championship team with with Kansas City. I look back and and uh, I'm interested for somebody that was there. Is that was a team to me was kind of a throwback team. It wasn't the typical modern day 2022 hit the ball over the fence. Uh, it was more. It reminded me kind of a St. Louis team uh, of the 80s or the 90s. But with a with a little bit of a twist, I, I think this modern day game where so much uh, so much so much money now is put into a power bullpen. I mean, when I was coming up, yeah, in 1990, it was kind of the beginning of it. You had Charlton, you had Dibble and Randy Myers. They were the nasty boys in in. Uh, in Cincinnati, that was kind of the beginning of, wow, that's a power bullpen. Not like today. Today, it's such a specialist job. There's guys that that, that are in the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth, and, and it goes on and on. A lot, of the, a lot of the resources are put into the bullpen, whereas even 20, 25 years ago, that wasn't the bulk of the resource. They didn't go into the bullpen. They become really important in the modern day game. That 2015 Royals team, as I remember, it seemed like it was the beginning of what this what is the norm now. You had that power bullpen. You mentioned Hosmer, Mustakas, Kane, Rios, uh, Salvador Perez. I know also is is a big part of your journey. Uh, we're on that team, but but take me through that year. And and am I wrong when I say that was the beginning of the of what we know now as that power bullpen era? No doubt. It started in 14. And you said you uh, had, you had a, your guest was Ibanez the other day. It started with Ibanez in 14. Ibanez came over from Anaheim and we were playing, actually we were playing at Chicago at the White Sox. And uh, they had a player only meeting and Ibanez told these guys, because we weren't, I think we were just at 500 or maybe a little bit above. I'm not, I'm not real sure, but what we weren't, we weren't clicking yet. And Ibanez said, look, uh, I don't know what's going on here. I just got here, but um, you guys are pretty damn good. Uh, and you guys don't know yet how good you are and how tough you are to play against. Uh, me, he said, me, Raul, from looking at it from from a, from the other side uh, with the Angels at the time, we didn't want to play you. Nobody wanted to play you. You know, you guys can run. You put the ball in play. You hit and run. You play great defense and you play a five, six inning game. Uh, and then, you know, if, if you guys have the lead by five or six innings, game's over, you know, so that's where it kind of started. Um, and uh, it, it just became, it just became a five, six inning game. That's what we were about. You know, that's what these guys, you know, they knew that if we had the lead, 
by the sixth game was over. So we played baseball uh, to get the lead, get it early, get it to the, get it to the sixth inning and hand it over to that bullpen. And that's what we did in 14. Remember in 14, we got to the world series and we didn't lose a game in the playoffs in 14. Um, And, and it just, when we lost that seventh game against the giants in 14, you figure, you know, we got a long season. I wonder how these guys are going to respond next year when they come to spring training. And I'd be damned. They got to spring training and there wasn't, there wasn't any laps from, from a long season the year before. It was almost the opposite. It was like, we're not losing the seventh game this year again. And these guys, these guys were just winners. They played together in the minor leagues. They won everywhere in the minor leagues. They knew how to win. They knew how to do the little things to win a baseball game. And then once that bullpen came together, they knew our game was shrunk into a five or six inning game. So it was almost like we're playing the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning in the third, fourth, and the fifth to get the lead because we knew we were going to have Madsen, Hochaver, Herrera, um, Davis, Holland, and these guys were going to shut the door every single night. So um, that's kind of the baseball that we play. You're right. It's a throwback. And I think it, and you're right. I think it started, you know, it started that trend to where, you know, you know what? Starters are hard to find. Starters that go, you know, three, four times the, around the order are really, really hard to find. And if you find them, they cost a hell of a lot of money. So why don't we start building bullpens where starter give us five innings and we have guys that go, that that can shut the door and that's that's what's happening in the game. I think you're right because there's only a handful of teams out there that, like you said, those premium starters. I mean, you look at the Mets right now; they have a, a Max Scherzer. They just signed Verland. They're both making over forty million dollars. They're both. Uh, I think I think Verlander's coming up on 40 years old, Max in his late 30s. Uh, not every team can can whip out 80, 90 million for two frontline guys. And and that's always that's the old guard. It's always been best start pitching. That's who wins the, the World Series. Now, if you can line up guys like that, that gives you a pretty big edge. But I think the bullpen and today's today's kind of uh, building block is, well, the masses can build a bullpen. Uh, the masses can't have three starters at $40 million a piece. So I think that's why you've seen it. And and I watch, you know, the last couple of years in the playoffs, you watch the teams with the power bullpens, not necessarily win the World Series, but they're going deep into the tournament. And, and that's a day uh, we're in a day and age where, man, economics are they're flying through the roof. And and when we first came up, you know, I, I, I got to a point and I'm very thankful for uh, for the years I played and the money was pretty good. Uh you know, at the end of my career, but man, you look up on the board now and it's like that guy got that much money. It's amazing. And, and you take a step back and you go, you know, it's a new time. It means that the industry's doing that well, because one thing we know about these owners, uh, they're cutthroat. They, they can be tough at times, uh, but they're not stupid people. And if they're paying this kind of money, that tells you that there is a lot of money in this game. And and as far as you keep that boat going in the right direction, and, and we've had no work stoppages now. Uh, the last one was 1994. You keep this ship in the right direction. Uh, the players especially are going to continue to thrive uh, economically, definitely. It's, it's pretty awesome to see some of these contracts. I shake my head sometimes, but then I kind of get out of myself and go, that's the way it is now. And and it's been generations and generations that have fought to get to where these players are now, and and they're making a ton of money. It's it's kind of at times I just go wow 
That's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And you know what? It, it, speaking of starters, you know, our, our, I don't want to change the subject, but our starters are, are, are pretty good. These are guys that can go deep in game. Um, so we have the makings of having a really nice rotation with a really good bullpen. Really good. Hendricks at the Hendricks, your closer. Yeah. yeah. Lopez, you got that Graveman kid, you know, Graveman, yeah. I still have a, I still have a little bit, you know, I'm not necessarily, I'm a fan of, of the game. Usually not a team, but yeah, my heart's kind of still in Seattle. That's where my big years were. I have a lot of great memories there. So I keep a keep one eye on the Mariners all the time. And uh, when they let Graveman go, I said, oh, no, that's, you know, now they built a great bullpen now. And I think the Mariners are going to be someone to be reckoned with uh, going forward. But I saw Graveman when they let him go two years ago at the trading deadline to the White Sox. I said, no, not Graveman. So, yeah, you, you've got a great bullpen. You got Giolito at the top of your rotation, really good rotation. We're going to get to that in a second because it's really interesting. I had real high expectations, high hopes for that Chicago White Sox team last year. They, they had some injuries here and there but I really think they fell short uh, of, of the talent that they had on the field. Um, going back to, to your Kansas City days, in 2020, uh, you become the bench coach. Mike Matheny's the skipper. And, you know, it's one thing being uh, working with the catchers. It's one thing being a hitting coach. A lot, of the, a lot of the roles you had, as you mentioned, in the minor leagues, obviously those are all block-building uh you know, experiences for you. So when you get to that job, you're, you're really ready for it. First time you're the bench coach. Talk to me a little bit about behind the scenes being a bench coach. I know my bench coaches, we had John McLaren was a big guy. He was always Lou Pinella's guy and he played a huge role. Nobody knew who John McLaren was, but I knew how important he was to those Mariner teams of the early 2000s. What he did behind the scenes, he was kind of the eyes and the ears. He'd, he'd take the temperature of the clubhouse and he, and he wasn't a a guy that went and told on players or anything like that. He just wanted to, to get that temperature out in the clubhouse. Cause as a skipper, I think uh, the, the great skippers I've seen uh, they're personable, they're hands on, but at the same time, there, there, there's gotta be a safe distance between player and skipper. There's just something about it, you know, cause you got to make big decisions. There's going to be a point in this season where if you get too close to a player, you got to call them in your office maybe and say, Hey, we're sending you down or, or, or we're trading you. You know, that's probably some of the, toughest parts of the job you haven't experienced them yet but you're going to uh take me through that first time you're the bench coach and and what that what that means to a big league manager and how port how important it is you know what i was lucky that um ned used me as uh, somewhat of a bench coach in since you know 14 on until when he was when, when he was when he retired so it was me and wakamatsu and we you know wakamatsu obviously was the bench coach but i did a lot of those duties and and the game the game planning and in the clubhouse uh so i got a little bit of a head start uh on that i didn't have the title but um uh, but I did a lot of the a lot of the bench coach stuff, especially on the game planning uh, part of the game. So when I got the job with uh, Mike, since I had since I had been there a while, um, the adjustment wasn't that uh, big of a deal for me. Uh, it was just you know learning Mike's personality because uh, I have to have the opposite of what he's got. And I think that's the that's the balance. If if he's uh, tough as nails, then I got to be, 
loose in that clubhouse. If he's loose, then I, then I probably have to be a little tougher in that clubhouse. So, and I think that's the balance that you have to have, obviously, as a, as a bench coach. And the way Mike did it uh, and the way he presented it to me was actually awesome. He said, look, I I want you to, you're the manager of this team. I want you to manage the game. I want you to manage this team. You know, obviously know that I'm the manager, but I need you to, to also be the manager and bring things to me as you see him. So our relationship was uh, really, really good. He allowed me to to be myself. He allowed me to manage a game. Uh, he allowed me to just any thought that I would have, you know, just just let him know. Um, I mean, he he gave me the liberty of being this second manager, which is what you are as a, as a bench coach. Uh, but my strengths are communicating. You know, uh, communication is my strength. So I was in that clubhouse. I had built really good relationships and I was able to facilitate those relationships, you know, to Mike uh, so that he can so that he can build those relationships quickly. And that's why I, I thought him and I worked really well together. And that's what I'm looking for uh, in, in Charlie. I mean, Charlie's a, a loose uh, guy. He likes to have fun. I like to have fun, of course, but I'm a little more um intense and i think charlie brings a good balance to to our duel here in chicago as well the end of the 22 season uh and now we get into the, the crux of it and i'm really interested in this the interview process uh you had mentioned you, you interviewed for all three jobs this officer you interviewed for the tigers twice the orioles you're a finalist with the with the giants uh so you, you the interview process <clears throat> um when you go into an interview and today they're a little uh, they're a little more technical probably than they were back in the day. There's a lot of steps to them. Uh, there's different sessions. Some guys might be in the first round and the second round. Oh, they're going to bring in him and third round. Maybe the owner's sitting in there. Um, take me through the interview process. You've done it a lot. And when you walk out of each and every one, do you kind of have a gut feeling like I killed it or man, that wasn't a good interview. Uh, I, I, I did until I had the White Sox uh, interview. So, um, you, you know, you walk out there, you, the, the, the first thing you got to do, and I learned this probably two or three interviews into it, is you, you can't try to mold yourself into what you think they're looking for. You just got to be you. Uh, and if they like you, they buy you. If they don't, they move on to the next guy. And I, and I learned that probably three interviews in. And, uh, you know, I got to home and I told my, she told me how to go. And I'm like, look, I'm, I'm done just trying to, you know, say the right things and, you know, and be the person they, they might want me to be. I'm just going to be mean. If they buy me, they buy me. And if they don't, they don't, you know, and that's just, you know, after you go through a few of those, you, you kind of realize, okay, this is, this is what I got to do. And that, that's what, that's what it was for me. Uh, this year it was exhausting, uh, Booney, because it was, there was three of them, you know, and, um, and we, you know, I was bouncing around from, you know, luckily Miami's home, you know, but I had gone to Chicago for a Monday interview then came to Miami, got home like at 1130 at night. And then I had a 10 o'clock interview in Miami. And then I had a couple of days I had to go back to Kansas City um, and have an interview there. And each process is different. You know, some some teams are you just sit around and, and they ask you, they prepper you with questions for four hours. And some teams put you through, you know, simulators and, you know, mock press conferences and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you got to be well-versed to, to do all this stuff. And you got to probably have done it before in some, in some 
shape, way, way or form, you know, and luckily for me as a farm director, you know, you get in front of the media, you get in that, you know, the press room over there in Seattle and you, you know, you talk to a group of 25 or 30 media members. So uh, that was certainly helpful. But um, the, the, the difference this year was, you know, Miami, uh, I thought I had a good interview in Miami. I thought I had a really good interview in Kansas City. Uh, but in Chicago, it was different. My wife asked me how to go. And I said, this one's different. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I think this one's real. You know, I had that feeling. It, it just We just sat in a room. There was four of us um, and we just had a connection. Um, and if you've heard any of the interviews from from Rick, he says that, you know, 20 minutes into it, it you know, it felt a little different. That, well, that's the same way I felt. 20 minutes into it, I was like, you know what? This is a really good match right here. These these guys are a blend of old school and new school. They've been around the game a long time. You have a general manager that's been there for maybe 20 years. You had Kenny Williams has been there 20 plus years. Ryan Stewart was there for as as on the team for 40 plus years. Uh, these guys have been around have been around the game. Chris Getz I had as a player, you know, in uh, in Kansas City, and Jeremy Haber also had been there a long time. So it was almost like it was like a family environment and they were just, you know what, this is about baseball. You know, it's not a real big front office. Um, so it was just a comfort uh, that I felt like this one, there's a possibility here. This one's, this one's real. So it just turned out that, you know, from there, you know, I had the second round and the second round you add Kenny Williams. Uh, and then the third round you add, you add uh, Jerry Reinsdorf. And then I had another one with uh, Jerry as well. So there was four parts to that, to that process. But every time I, they added somebody else, I felt more comfortable, you know, with the group. So it was a, uh, it was a pretty cool process. And I, I, I'm, I'm confident that this is, that this was a perfect place for, for me and my family. Putting together a staff, we touched on a little bit. Um, How important is it for you to have your guys on your staff? I, I, I think about it all the time, uh, being a skipper, and I'm thinking, man, if the day came that I, that I was on the field and I was the manager, I'd, I'd want to have my guys down there, guys that I knew, you know, like you, you said, we have so many relationships through our, through our careers, through our journeys. It seems to me important to have guys that, that you've known and, and been with and developed relationships and know have your back. How important is that? And how'd you go about putting your staff together? Well, um, I've had interviews before where you, you know, I wasn't going to be able to bring. That's know, tough for me. That, I, that, that's tough for me. When I see guys that are kind of lame ducks, like, no, if you want this job, it, you can take one guy, but we're going to fulfill, you know, we're <laughs> going to fill it in with guy. It, I just think, man, that's, that's not the way you want to start. All right. I'm sorry. I, I had yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. I'm glad you said that. I mean, that's, that's the truth. I've had interviews before where, um, you know, you're, you're like, you might be able to bring one guy. You're not going to be able to bring more than that. Um, and this year it just so happens that all three of them, you were going to be, I was going to be able to bring, you know, at the very least two or three or maybe four, you know? So um, that was really important for, uh, you know, for Rick and, and Kenny and, and Chris and Jeremy that, that I had guys. Um, and it was important for me. And, and the reason it's important for me is because no matter what, uh, you know, we're pros and we can adapt. We've been in the game a long time and we can adapt to, to situations. Okay. But it, it, human nature has it to where you, you, you meet somebody for the first time or you don't know somebody that well, and now you're working with them 
closely. It's going to take a little while to trust, you know. So and and the shelf life for managers is not that <laughs> you don't you're not afforded that that type of time, you know, to to feel this thing out. And uh, I think it's extremely important to have guys around you that you know that you know how they work, they know how you work, you know when things uh, you know when things get uh, tough, how you react, how they react. Um, I, that's really important. These guys that are around me, uh, for the most part, uh, there's, we have eight, I have eight guys on, on our staff, uh, four of them I've worked with, you know, uh, for a long, long time. Uh, Jose Castro was my bench coach in Venezuela. Mike Tozar was my outfield base running coordinator in, in Seattle. And he also managed there. Eddie Rodriguez was a, our manager in Double A in, in Seattle. He was my out, my um, uh, base running, also base running coordinator in Seattle. He coordinated instructionally for me. Uh, Charlie Montoyo, I've known I've known for a while. I've never worked with him um, on the same club, but I've known him for a long time, and I have friends that are that are really close to me that uh, really love him, and and he's and I've gotten to know him well in the last you know five or six weeks, and it, he's a great fit. Um, so it's extremely important to be able to, uh, to know and trust the people that are around you, the pitching guys, uh, Ethan Katz and Kurt Hassler. Um, I didn't, I don't know, but here's the deal with that. Like I was really happy while when, when Rick and these guys said, Hey, we're really happy with our pitching with our pitching guys. And I'm like, you know what? I'm so happy to hear you say that. I've heard great things about both these guys, but Beyond that, when you when you're as a new manager coming in and you got to develop 26, you know, relationships, you know, plus another maybe 10, 10 or 15 more on the roster and you got to start building relationships. If now your pitching coach has to build those relationships, too, you're behind the ball, man. You got two guys that have to build relationship with both sides, both sides of the ball. And that's that's really tough. So I was really happy that our pitching department kind of stayed um, intact. And then obviously Daryl Boston. I mean, everybody loves him. He know he has a great time, you know, on the field. He has fun. The players love him. And he's a good worker. You know, he's a good worker and he's knowledgeable and he's been around the game. So I'm really, really happy with the staff that we were able to put together. Um, especially bringing, you know, these these guys that I was able to uh afforded the ability to bring. You're now the face of the White Sox. Uh what kind of culture do you want to create there? What's what's your Kind of your mantra coming in first day. Well, i I want these guys to be able to be themselves. Uh, I think I think you doing what you've done in the game and uh, being the type of player you were, um, you know what it's like to be able to suit up, go on the field, and and enjoy yourself, and be able to make mistakes, and be able to do things uh, that you know are you're going to learn from as opposed to being reprimanded for or 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 being in an environment where it's a too tense where you're not you're not yourself um there's a lot of different personalities on this club there's different cultures uh i understand i understand all those coach cultures i empathize with those i want these guys to be themselves i want them i want our environment to be uh a, an environment they can enjoy they can they can uh, be great in do try to do great things as opposed to try not to make mistakes. Um, and then obviously the last piece to this thing is 
Um, I want to play winning baseball. I want these guys playing winning baseball every night. So whatever it takes to win a baseball game. So that there's an intense part to this in, to this uh, environment, this joyful environment that you're trying to create. There's an intense part to it. And the intensity is we got to do whatever it takes to win this baseball game, whether it's to go, whether it's a ball in the dirt, whether it's move a guy over, bun a guy over, or put a ball in the seats. It doesn't matter. You know, whatever it takes to win a baseball game tonight um, is what we're looking for. The new era of baseball, there's a lot of data. There's a lot of Sabre metrics. Uh, my last year's, the, the Sabre metric, they, they hadn't arrived yet. Now, uh, <clears throat> a little bit later for me, I, I'm learning. You know, I, I'm, I'm studying these Sabre metrics. I'm watching the game as it, as it is today. I'm not one of those guys that, that goes on from his career. Oh, my, you know, my generation's the best. And screw all these Sabre metrics. I, I think that's a naive approach to take. So I'm really seeing where they can be implemented, where, where they can't. Also being a player that never went through uh, the, the time where we had all this at our fingertips. You've been, in the, you've been in the game a long time. So you were there back when sabermetrics wasn't a thing. It was, and I know it's a, it's a word that's not, it's kind of frowned upon these days, the old school days where it was just old school baseball. You came up in that era. You've you've lived through the sabermetrics generation. What do the fans out there not understand, or what don't they get about when when they hear it on TV, on the radio? Sabermetrics this and sabermetrics that. What don't they understand about that? Well, it, it's different. Sabermetrics are used for different things. I think sabermetrics are extremely important when you're in player procurement. Okay, that that's you know that's evident. Okay, that's a, that's a big part of that. Um, when you're down there in the dugout, you're, you know, you're, you're pre-game, okay, you can use all the sabermetrics and all the numbers and, and create a plan and, and game plan for that, for that night. But you're not going to be able to apply that stuff in real time, okay, unless you've planned for it before. So the sabermetrics, it's a game planning type of thing. And then once you get into the game, uh, in real time, it's an instinctual, it's, uh, experience. Um, it's, it's just reacting, uh, to a situation, to the, to how you practice, to how you prepared to that kind of stuff. Sabermetrics, um, I'm not going to say they're just numbers, uh, because they do prepare you, but it doesn't, it doesn't help you navigate through a game. If you're a player, it helps you navigate through a game, you know, if you're if you're a manager, if, uh, you know, based on what you prepared for that day and what you have available available that day. So it's a big part of it. What I'm trying to say, it's a big part of it, but it's not the end all be all. And there's a lot of instinctual stuff that that needs to be applied, you know, during the game as a manager and as coaches. And there's a lot of psychological stuff that has to be applied that there's no sabermetrics for. Um, so, uh, there's, there's a lot to this game that, that goes well and above and beyond sabermetrics. When you step into that dugout and, 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 and it's not, you've managed before, this isn't your first go, right? You're just now you're managing the Chicago White Sox. So obviously on the surface, big deal, but you have plenty of managerial experience at, at the minor league level, plenty of, of high level coaching experience at the big league level. When you formulate your game plan and, and do you ever put yourself into that player mode and go, okay, 
What did I, what was important to me as a player? I mean, I'll get, I'll give you a, a layman example for me. What was important to me, especially as a younger player was coming to the ballpark and not having to, you know, I was an everyday player. I played 155 plus every year. What was number one for me was not having to go into that clubhouse and check the lineup. Now, I wanted to play every day. I thought I was Cal Ripken when I was 24 years old. But if the skipper would come to me and, and say, Booney, we're going to give you a day off tomorrow. That doesn't mean I was happy about it. Usually pissed. But I had the night to sleep on it. I'd wake up the next morning. I had a mind frame. So I was going to be a good teammate that day. I was coming in. I know I have a day off. doesn't mean I like it. But I know I have a day off. I'd come in one time in my career, and, and I won't name the place that it was. Uh, it wasn't exactly that way. I still played 150-plus games. But I'd come to the ballpark and just be floored. Like, how am I not playing it? I was still a young player. You know, there's some immaturity in there, of course. But that was, you know, that's just my example of things that were important to me as a player. Do you ever, when you're in that manager role, do you ever think, how would I want to be treated in this situation when I was still playing? Do you think about stuff like that when formulating your your style? Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, that's everything to me, to be honest with you. I, um, you know, when, when you're not, when you're not a good player growing, coming up in the, in the, uh, in the minor leagues um, and you struggle like I struggled, um, you learn a hell of a lot more than if you probably just breeze through the minor leagues and get to the bigs and have success. Um, and the view from the bottom is probably a, a hell of a lot clearer than the view from the top, in my opinion. So you learn how, you know, you would want to be treated. Um, and, you know, cause, cause that's, you know, let's, let's not hide the fact that prospects had treated great, you know, prospects, are treated. The, other, the other guys are the ones that are, Hey, you know what, you're here to develop these prospects and that's coming up in the minor leagues. Um, so that gave me a clear view on, on what, players think um how they would how they want to be treated and i've never forgotten that i've never forgotten how hard this game is how difficult it is to maintain your body for 162 games how important it is to know that you're not playing the next day uh, so you can set up maybe you sleep a little longer maybe you wake up earlier and you get a workout in knowing that you're not playing that day so um yes i'm gonna we're gonna create a system that's gonna facilitate players you know, to, to know exactly when they're playing. Um, obviously things come up where we have to make adjustments, but the lineups are sent the day before the schedule sent the day before the communication is going to be there. Um, players don't, I don't expect players to be happy when they're not playing, but we're going to let them know why they're not playing. Um, you know, and that's just, it'll, it'll be probably a, a tactical thing, you know, with sports science uh, involved in it, trainers involved in it. Um, you know, every, there's so many departments now that are part of the process. Uh, and obviously you got to hear the player too. The player says, I feel good. You got to, you got to take that into account as well. Uh, so uh, we've been having meetings and we've been having zoom, having zoom calls with sports science and this whole, you know, everything we're trying to put everything together. The most important thing is what you said. It's communication. It's knowing exactly what you know, in plenty of time, you know, what you're going to be doing the next day, if you're playing or not, so that you can create a schedule for yourself that day, whether you want to rest that day or you want to really get after it to prepare yourself for the next day. Having said that, days off um, are not completely days off. And I've, and I've made this clear and I will continue to make it clear. Have, days off are 
you're not starting the game, it doesn't mean that we're compromising a baseball game just because you have a day off. You got to make sure you put yourself in a position to, to play if you're not going to be starting the game. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Your question was, you know, do you ever think about that? I think about that all the time. How can we better serve these players to prepare themselves for a game or prepare themselves for a day off? How important is the relationship with the general manager? Unbelievably important. Uh, we almost have to be, we almost have to be one. Um, he's got to be able to come down there and tell me what he needs to tell me. And I got to be able to tell him what I need to tell him. And we got to understand each other's jobs uh, and, and, and know the fragility of the jobs. I know that he's got to deal with ownership. I know he's got to deal with, you know, with people in the front office and he knows I got to deal with players, you know, and that's really important. It's a, it's a whole different world when you have to deal with, you know, with, with players, you don't, you, sometimes you can't just implement things, you know, that quickly, um, you know, when you're dealing with superstars, you know, it just, it just takes a little time. You got to build relationships. You got to explain to them why we're doing it, you know, and you got to get buy-in and to get buy-in, you got to build really trust, trusting relationships. And that takes a little time sometimes. Look at your team a little bit. Like I said, last year, I, I, you know, we'd go through the, the divisions we got to Chicago. I said, well, that's, it's a foregone conclusion that Chicago's by far the, the, the talent in, in the central didn't el- didn't end up working out that way. Um, you lost a big guy this year and a Brayu to free agency went to the Astros. Uh, you got Clevenger from San Diego. He's an interesting guy to me to watch, you know, uh, a lot of ability uh, made that big comeback. I believe from Tommy John was out a year. Uh, now you've got him in your rotation. We mentioned at the top, Giolito Cease had the had the big year last year. Lance Lynn and, and Kopech, Hendricks in your bullpen. You've got Timmy Anderson at shortstop, who's been kind of the, the face of that franchise for a lot of years. I really like the center fielder, Robert, and, and I'm really interested in going forward how good of a player he can really be. Jimenez, I think you've had him somewhere, Eloy, uh, in, in your journey. And uh, you got a couple of free agents in Pollock and Cueto. Um, how's this team looking for you? How excited are you about it? I, uh, I still think you're the class of the division. Yeah, I you know obviously losing Abreu, um, you know, stings a little bit, and I think you know everybody knows what kind of player he was and what he meant to this to this franchise. You know, however, you know we uh, you know we're comfortable with uh, Andrew Vaughn going to first base uh, and and taking on that responsibility. Um, you know, we got a, a couple minor league guys that we feel can can maybe make that jump to the big leagues and 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 be a, and be a part of it. Uh, there's a lot of talent on this team. Our starting rotation is really really good. I think, you know, when you look at, at baseball in general, you know, our our starting five uh, can probably compete with anybody. You know, the depth of it. Um, so we're we're extremely excited there. I think Clevenger was a great addition to that. To that rotation, uh, I believe he's going to have uh, a really good year. He's been he's been really good at the major league level for for quite some time. So, and we got some veterans at the top of that rotation, which is really really good. Uh, Lance Lynn is a he's a bulldog. He's a leader. He gives us innings. He's a winner. You know, same look and um, Dylan Cease and and Giolito the same. You know, the same. And Kopech is is a you know is a really really good talent. Good talent. Um, that's got his best baseball ahead of him, uh, I believe, as well. So, uh, like I said, the bullpen's really good. Our, our position players are extremely talented. I had Eloy Jimenez in uh, Dominican, and Eloy Jimenez is a special bat. 
Um, I believe he's a special bat. I believe he's uh, he's got that ability to you know to hit for average and hit for power, which is a rare ability now in the, in in this game. So um, he's got he's got that ability to do both. And Moncada has had success in in the major leagues. Uh, I think he was top ten or twelve in MVP voting a couple of years ago. So we're looking for him to get back to you know to that uh, to that spot. And obviously, you know the guy you mentioned. Uh, Tim Anderson, he's the leader. I mean, he's he's the uh, the guy that drives this uh, bus. The energy, the edge that he plays with um, is uh, is incredible to watch from the other side. I love watching him. I think he's one of the best players in the game. And then Luis Robert in in center field. Um, there's really nothing he can't do in the game. Uh, this guy's got ability to 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 show you five tools at any given time, and let's not forget about Grandal behind the plate. I mean, it, a couple of years ago he ran a four twenty, you know, on base percentage with uh, with ability to to really do some good things behind the plate. So yes, we're talented. Um, I don't like to talk about whether you know we're going to win the division or whether we should or not. I just want us to play. Uh, intense baseball winning baseball on a daily basis and come out with that mentality and and have fun that's all i want to talk i think if we if we do that um we have capabilities of doing some special things but we have to do that on a daily basis pedro grafal i appreciate you coming on man uh once again congratulations what a what a uh you know, beginning of a, of a great managerial career, well-earned. Uh, you've been through it all. You've seen it all. You've been a world champion, and, and now you're going to be be uh, running the show in Chicago. And, and I'm really looking forward to, to watching how you guys do, because I've, I've, been, I've been one of those guys on, on the Chicago's jock for a few years now. And last year, you know, every, oh, how's your White Sox? I said, oh, come on. I, can't, I can just tell you, I can just tell you what I see on paper. I really appreciate it. Congratulations. And uh, what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one. <laughs>